Welcome. Thank you for being with us. We are on the weekend before Easter, and um, my bet is by now you're getting a little stir crazy. You're, you're, you love your family. You love them even more. You've had great relationships with them, incredible conversations, and you've also tried not to kill them um, because that's how it is with family, right? We love them and we can't murder them, and you shouldn't because that would be horrible. Um, however, however, my bet is you're feeling a little bit. Um, you know, cooped up. So make sure you go outside, make sure you breathe fresh air and the air is just continuing to get more and more fresh, especially for us here in Southern California, I think. But we wanna make sure that you're being healthy and that you're getting out and that you're making sure you're making those connections that you need to be, even if they're digital as well. We are in week six of our awakening series and we are close to Easter and we don't know if we're gonna be having this sermon or not. If it's all done, um, uh, you won't even hear this sermon but if you are hearing this sermon, it means that we are still in um, quarantine with the coronavirus or sheltering in place or whatever we're calling it. And listen, uh, this is a new thing for Americans, right? And I'm going to just assume that we don't love it. But sometimes God calls us to be deeply rooted in a place. And so let's take time to do that as we go through this. As, as stir-crazy as we get, let's make sure we take time to dig into the things that matter most, family, community, a deeper commitment and seeking of Jesus Christ. And um, a couple of weekends ago, um, as we were just kind of beginning to get into this thing and figure out what it meant, my wife and I were working on a puzzle, a thousand-piece puzzle. Um, I, I usually put a three or four pieces of the puzzle together and she puts the other 996 pieces together. But we were working on a puzzle and we FaceTimed some friends and we spent an hour on the phone just having this great conversation. And so we wanna make sure that you're doing that as well because we have to see this opportunity. Uh, we have to see the opportunity in this crisis, right? And, and the text this week leads us to this idea because Jesus has died and they're taking him away and it's, the darkness, right? It's the tunnel without the light, and it couldn't have gotten any worse for the universe. So the question we have to ask today is how do we approach the darkest night in our lives? Do we approach it with courage? Do we approach it with faith? Do we approach it with fear? There's this story of what the power of fear can do. And um, the story takes place on the Oka River, and it was in 1462, the Russians were fighting the Tartans and the Tartans were on their way to invade Russia. And the only reason that the Russians could survive was the fact that the Oka River was there and it was very difficult to cross. But as you know, Russia is a cold place and this was in winter. And as it got colder and colder, the river began to freeze and finally the river froze completely. And the Russians, were fearful that they were going to die. So what did they do? They ran to Moscow. But then a fascinating thing happens because the Tartans woke up in the morning and realized the Russians were not on the other side of the river. And that caused a great deal of fear in them. And so rather than them going, hey, this is our opportunity, let's go, they succumbed to their fear. They, they, they leaned into their fear and they ran back all the way to, I believe it's called the Kola River. Um, both armies allowed fear to rule. They ran away because of that 
freezing of the river. And we have lots of stories of fear versus faith in scripture. Um, And that's, I think, how we have to approach this, right? We have to approach this in a way that sees the opportunity in the crisis. You know, the story of Rahab is a real story of faith right? There's this impending doom. They know that the Israelites are coming. There's a lot of fear and anxiety around it. But in the midst of it, she has a a willingness to recognize God and his power right in the midst of it. You know, there's these two spies. And I don't know if you remember the story. You probably do. I won't spend a great deal of time on it. But, you know, there's these two spies and she actually hides them. She hides them up on the roof. And um, and they must not have been great spies, just for the record. I don't know if you know this, but they... um, they get caught, or, or they are known about immediately. The king knows about them almost immediately. He sends people to go find them. She hides them on a roof through in the midst of some bushels of grain. And afterwards, she comes to them and she says, listen, we, we know that your God is powerful. And, and we recognize that. And so can you take care of us? She was willing to lean into the power of God and see the crisis and the opportunity for her and her family. And the story of Joseph of Arimathea is a story of faith as well. It's a story about courage in the darkest of times, of being present in the difficulty, and of not being willing to simply let Jesus go when things get difficult. So we're going to begin, again, looking in the book of Luke, chapter 23, as this story continues to unfold. It begins like this. Now, there was a good and righteous man named Joseph. He was a member of the Jewish High Council. Now, um, So probably you know about Pharisees and Sadducees, and they made up this this council called the Sanhedrin. He would have been a part of that. But, But scripture is clear. Luke is very clear to write that he was a good and righteous man. Now, he didn't say that about everyone. He did say, it was, um, it, it was said about Barnabas in Acts eleven twenty four. But because Joseph of Arimathea was in the Sanhedrin, he was well-respected and someone that people went to. He was a politician, a religious politician, you could probably say. Um, and I gotta tell you, when you have status, And all the gospels mention him here, right? They never mention him again. But when you have status, it becomes harder and harder to go against the grain. Have you ever been frustrated administrators? Now, you know, I'll be be careful with this because some of you watching are absolutely administrators. Um, I sometimes get frustrated with administrators, whether it's, you know, it doesn't matter what administrator. I sometimes get frustrated. Um, And I'm an administrator because I have to administrate this church. And I'm sure that oftentimes my staff becomes frustrated with me. Um, when you become an administrator, there's certain things that you have to choose and make and, and decide, and not everybody understands it. And, and sometimes when you become an administrator in an organization, it's, or a culture, I guess we could say, it's very difficult to go against the grain. So what we're going to see in this story is pretty fascinating. He was a good and righteous man. And in fact, it said he was upright, dikaios, which is, I'm not sure that I'm necessarily in the right, dikaios, I believe. But it, he possesses a, um, it, it's, it's more of a religious sense, right? He was upright. In fact, this is actually the base word for the, the word that we use for deacon, um, which is pretty cool. And it's more than just being simply innocent or good. It's, it's he's righteous. He's a believer. And this is stated in other gospels. It's not necessarily stated here, but it is stated in other gospels as well. So this is a good man. But 
It says in Luke chapter 23, verse 51, he had not agreed with the decision and the actions of the other religious leaders, right? He was innocent of their plots. But of course, there's guilt by association, isn't there? We, we always have guilt by association. And Luke mentions that he's from the town of Arimathea, which means that he understands that his audience is probably Gentiles, not Jews, because they would have known who Joseph was probably. So he keeps saying he was from Arimathea in Judea. And he was waiting, and this phrase I love, he was waiting for the kingdom of God to come. Right? Luke, Luke wanted to clear it up that he was, he was innocent of their plots, even if he might have been called guilt by association, but Luke wanted to make sure he cleared that up. But then he, he has this phrase, he was waiting for the kingdom of God to come. And you know what other times we use that phrase? When we talk about Simeon. Remember Simeon who was waiting at the temple for Jesus to come and he, he holds Jesus up. And then of course, Anna as well. They wanted to see the return of God. They wanted to see the kingdom of God come. They waited for it. They looked for it. And he saw in Jesus the savior of the world and the new kingdom come. And this was amazing. But I wonder, how will you know when the new kingdom comes? How will you know when the kingdom of God shows up? And in these times, it would be nice if it did come. But how will you know? Because, I mean, let's face it, there's not going to be a castle. There's no palace, no robes, no suits, no trappings of power. And there's only going to be two rules. So we're, we can't see it. We can't see a coronation or a swearing in. It's so different. And in fact, the kingdom of God might be so different that everything might be falling apart. And again, there's only two rules. You know what those two rules are? Love God, love your neighbors. We've heard this before. That's the two rules of the kingdom of God, especially in this time. By the way, our neighbors are all we have right now. Um, you know, you got to love it in Italy. You see those, you see those uh, incredible videos of everybody singing from the balconies and that sort of thing. Um, we told our son he should go practice his cello out front. Um, that was both for us and our neighbors. He declined to do that. But, um, you know, our neighbors are important. There are a few other things, I think, that the kingdom brings to us. Even when things are all falling apart. Number one, I think it brings a compassion that will become your default setting. Right? It pushes back on selfishness. It pushes back on this idea of hoarding. It pushes back on, on the punishment. Your default becomes compassion. It becomes mercy. It becomes love. It becomes justice. It becomes healing. You know, those things that we see in the Missio Dei. That's when we know the kingdom is showing up personally in our lives. Secondly, you'll see other people as brothers and sisters, not enemies anymore. When we look at humanity through the eyes of Jesus, we are looking at others as brothers and sisters children of God as we all have been. And then I think the third thing that you'll get personally when you recognize the kingdom of God and you recognize that it's here is that you will find peace. And I know that we've been talking a lot about peace in the midst of, of a crisis, but we need it. There's also an ascent to the kingdom of God that is an ascent to the lordship of Jesus Christ in your life. It's one thing to agree that he's God. It's another thing to ascent and submit and man, we see Joseph of Arimathea doing this. He doesn't agree with what had just happened. And so what does he do? His, his status, his position allows him to go to Pilate, which we see in Luke 23, 52. 
he went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. And this was bold, right? But he did have access because of his position. And he wanted to do something tangible. Too often, in tough circumstances, we don't think we can do anything tangible. But you know what? Of course you can. Of course you can. There's about a million lists online of what you can and should do in the midst of a crisis. I'm not going to belabor that point, but we are not helpless in the situation that we find ourselves. And I got to tell you, the followers of Jesus probably felt helpless. They watched him die and felt like this is it. There's nothing else we can do. But Joseph knew he wasn't helpless. And so what he did is he went to Pilate and he asked for the body. And lo and behold, Pilate gives him the body. And in the very next verse, what we see is that he takes the body down from the cross. It says he does it. Some of the other gospels said he had, he and other people did it. Either way, it doesn't matter. What he did is he got his hands dirty. He was willing to take the bruised and bloodied body, the dead corpse of Christ. And remember, in Jewish ceremonial law, that would have been very difficult and very tough. But he grabs him and he pulls him off the cross and he wraps it in a long sheet of linen cloth and he lays it in a new tomb that had been carved out of rock that we have an assumption was for him. He did this personally. His position didn't stop him from being tangible. He was not too important to be the one that, that grabbed Jesus off the cross. Listen, position often, often makes us think we don't have to do the dirty stuff. We don't have to do the little things. If your theology or if your position or if your status won't allow you to get dirty, you've got a problem. I would just say that absolutely plainly. If you are too important for the least important job, you need to rethink who you are and what you've become, what you believe yourself to be. This is not just in a time of crisis. This is when things are good as well. We should all be able to roll up our sleeves and do the most menial task for Christ and for other people. If we can't do that, then how high do we think of ourselves? Listen, we understand that beautiful text where, where Jesus does not consider, you know, and is willing to come down and, and submit himself to us and to death, even death on a cross. If, if we can't do that for the least of our brothers and sisters, whether it's in a crisis or not, then what have we become? Have we become too important? Joseph is a, is a case study in, in someone who has position, someone who has status, someone who, who people trusted and respected. And he said, you know what? Let me get him. Let me pull him off the cross. That couldn't have been a good thing. That must have been an incredibly uncomfortable situation to be in but he was willing to do that. Now we jump back into the story, Luke 23, 54. This was done late on Friday afternoon, the day of preparation as the Sabbath was about to begin. Now, of course, due to religious law, a body could not remain hanging after sundown. And the Romans accommodated this practice in Judea, obviously. They let him go get them. You see, this was a Sabbath requirement. So what is the Sabbath, right? Um, and... I'm not going to get super theological on this. I think in the most general and broad terms, we can talk about the Sabbath as a different moment, a break. It's a tithe in time that we give back to God and we give back to our families. And in fact, we could actually, we could actually say that right now we are all currently Sabbathing together. 
So how is your Sabbathing different with your family and with your community right now? How is your Sabbathing different in this new reality? How does life change? I mean, it has, and it should. So how can we take advantage of it? How can we take advantage of the opportunity that we have? The other day, I went into my uh, oldest son's room, Jacob, and he was doing some work, and he was, you know, he had the office on, like everyone seems to all the time now. He had the office on. I just laid down on his bed and lay down next to him. We just chatted for a while, and he showed me the work he was doing. And I fell asleep, and I think we actually both fell asleep. I haven't taken a nap with my son since he was three years old, probably. It was a moment. I woke up, and it was a moment to be a dad to my son. How are we Sabbathing differently in this time? Going back to the text, did you, notice, did you notice the linen wrapping that they wrapped him around? And, and of course, it's important that we know that, right? Because there was no mention that they made him prepared for burial, but he was wrapped. They did the least that they could do and put him in the cave. You see, the women... They intended to fix that situation on Sunday when they went to the tomb. They wanted to take the frankincense and they wanted to take the myrrh and all these spices and wrap his body with it so that it would not decompose. Chances are in a cave like that, even though it might have been warm during that season, that cave would have been nice and cool and would have preserved the body at least a little bit. And that's why they were there so early on Sunday morning, ready to, to prepare the body for its ultimate resting place. But then something happened. 23 verse 55 says, as his body was being taken away, the woman from Galilee followed and saw the tomb where his body was placed. Now, I don't know, for some reason, reading this, this moment, this time for this particular sermon, there was something I hadn't recognized before. I guess I always thought that Joseph of Arimathea was somebody that everyone knew. That, that all these believers knew each other and they hung out together. And so he's like, hey, I'll give him my tomb. And everyone was like, oh, thank you, Joseph. That didn't seem to be the case because they followed him to see where the tomb was. They didn't even know where it was gonna be. This was not a corporate community decision. This was one person deciding that they were gonna follow God and they were gonna follow Jesus regardless of the social implications, regardless of the political implications, regardless of what the people and his status were gonna think of him, regardless of all that, they didn't know Joseph, but they knew where Jesus was laid. And that probably gave them some comfort. You know, we often find comfort in just the knowing. So again, I wanna give you some comfort in this time and, and we'll be real honest, like we record these as quickly as we could because we didn't know how much longer we were gonna be able to record them. So we recorded this about a week and a half, two weeks before this was gonna show. So I don't know what the situation is now. Hopefully, you know, we created something to speak to it at the beginning, but if this is still going on, chances are anxiety has begun again to ratchet up. Listen, we do know certain things. We, we don't know when it's gonna end. We don't know how it's gonna work. You know, we, we don't know all of that stuff, but, but there is one thing that we know. We know that it will end, friends. Comfort is harder to find when you don't know the ending. But, but you gotta remember, as global as this is, this is a micro problem, not a macro problem. And I, I'm not diminishing everything that's going on. So hear me, hear me. 
This is a moment in time and there's a lot happening and absolutely, but compared to the death of God, maybe not as big. And it's certainly not as big as the ending, right? Because this too shall pass. And maybe it doesn't feel like it. And there's gonna be, of course, significant implications and significant damage. And, and, but there's also gonna be a blessing in it. We can rediscover something that we've lost. We can let the world breathe again. We can find a pace that is not so frenetic. We can change our lives a little bit. And we do know again that Jesus wins. And I hope you don't feel that I'm being redundant when I say that. But I find myself needing to be reassured again and again that God has this in his hand. As we kind of wrap up the text here, it says, then they went home and prepared spices and ointments to anoint his body. But by the time they were finished, the Sabbath had begun and they rested as required by the law. They honored the Sabbath to take a moment in the midst of all this crisis. Now we are being given a moment. So take this moment and change what needs to be changed in your life, for your family, for your heart. Read that book you haven't gotten to. Study that scripture that you haven't really studied in a long time. Find your center in Christ. I want you to reflect on who you are and how you can bend that trajectory towards a more powerful expression of Jesus in the world. And I want you to take a moment to pray. We, we don't get to pray the way I think prayer is meant to be. I think we stop all activity and we pray a little bit and then we go back to our activity. It was like this little second that we give to God. But I think, man, we can spend significant time in prayer. And that means not just praying, but, you know, shutting up, listening, waiting. You know that waiting is a spiritual discipline, right? Waiting for God to move. It might be hard, but sometimes it's required. The children of Israel got 40 years to wait. We can take 40 days to wait to see what God is gonna do and see what he's doing. I also think we need to respond. Now, how do we respond? There's lots of different ways we can respond. But I think one of the moments that has been given to us is that we can respond by praising God in this moment. And I hate to do it, but I'm gonna tell a story that I've told quite a few times. So the people who have been with us for the last five years, you've heard the story and I apologize, but I'm gonna say it again because I just think it's such a great thing. I was 13 years old, I think I was in seventh grade, and we go up to Mountain High, a ski resort, to go on a ski day with our whole junior high, seventh and eighth graders. 
Man, there must have been, I don't know how many people you put in a big yellow bus, but we were full, three to a seat, pretty excited. This is back in the 80s, nobody cared about seatbelts. Um, so we're there, we're skiing, it's a beautiful day, it starts snowing at about nine o'clock in the morning, and it just dumps, it snows and it snows, and we have the greatest time, my friends and I just skied, I mean, we skied, like I grew up with a dad who wanted to amortize every single, um, every single run that we took, and so he knew how much every single run took, and I was doing that in my third 13-year-old brain, I was like, okay, it's 50 cents a run. If I do it this way, it's 13 cents a run. Like, I got it down to like, I don't know, 12 cents a run. Like, it was good. We had had a great day. We were exhausted. We roll in. We all get back in the bus. We sit down in the bus, and our our Bible teacher, who was the, um, who, who took us on this trip, his name was Winston Morgan. He's still a friend of mine, a good friend of mine. He, he turns the ignition on the bus, and it, which I don't think it's supposed to do. And, you know, we weren't really paying attention. And so, you know, he takes a moment and then, okay, now the bus is getting a little quiet. It's getting a little more serious. We're a little more concerned right now that um, maybe something's wrong. And it's cold in the bus. It had been snowing all day. So he's like, he turns around. He's like, guys, it's fine. Don't worry about it. It's fine. Hang on a moment. We wait a little bit. He does it again. Now the bus is quiet. A bunch of 13, 14-year-olds, we're hungry, we want to get home, it's snowing. We're from Southern California in the Inland Empire where it doesn't snow, so snow is still like a little bit, you know, uh, overwhelming to us, and it's cold, we're getting nervous. And so he does something that I thought was the dumbest thing at the time. And Winston, if you watch this, I apologize that I thought it was so stupid. He gets up and he goes, all right, guys, this is the time when we praise God. And we're like, what? And you know, he used to play guitar. He used to lead us in songs and stuff. And like, nobody was gonna sing. And he's like, no, 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 we're not gonna sing. He's like, we're just gonna all jump up and say, praise the Lord. And I'm like, no, we're not. And I was, you know, I try, I at least thought I was cool when I was 13 years old. So I was like hanging back, like, you know, of course, in the back of the bus, not interested, not interested. And he does it. He's like, on three, we're all gonna jump up and say, praise the Lord. And so one, two, three, praise the Lord. Two people jumped, maybe. I'm not even sure the other sponsors jumped. They're looking at him like, come on, man, just get this engine fixed. And he's like, no, folks, we're gonna do it again. He's like, all right, one, two, three, and on three, 10 people jump. Praise the Lord. Everybody laughed at him. We laughed at them. Let's just face it. We laughed. We were, you know, punks. And he's like, we're doing it again. Man, he kept doing it. He would count to three and he would go praise the Lord every time. One other person, 10 other people, five other people. Pretty soon, oh, we're kind of, my, me and my buddies are kind of the only ones who aren't doing it. Finally, we succumb right to the peer pressure. And, he, and we go, praise the Lord. And we jump and we're jumping up and down and we're praising the Lord and we're steaming up this bus. People must have thought we were crazy. And wouldn't it be a great story if he sat down the bus and, and it started and we left? That didn't happen at all. No, what happened is the bus never started and we had to get our parents to drive up and get us. And by the time we got home, I thought I was gonna freeze and die. But you know what? For that bit, we were there. We were in it. We were praising God because that's what you do. That's how you respond to a crisis when you're in Jesus. You stand up and you jump and you shout and you praise the Lord because you know what? God's got this. 
And Joseph of Arimathea, in the midst of the darkest time in his life, in the darkest time of the universe, he knew there was something that he could do. There was a way that he could respond. And so he did the tangible things to make sure that Jesus was cared for. What are we doing in our lives to make sure that Jesus is cared for in the midst of this crisis, to make sure that his name is glorified, to make sure that his name is praised? What are we doing and how are we continuing to lift up his name? When do you need to to jump up and shout, praise the Lord. If I counted to one, two, and three, could you do it from your couch right now? Could you say, praise the Lord. We know how this is going to end. Maybe not on the micro scale, but we know how it's going to end on the macro scale. And yes, there's going to be a lot of pain on the way, but we can gather together. We can carry one another through this because that's what the community does. That's what the community of Christ does. We see one another as brothers and sisters, children of God, and we carry one another. So that's what we're going to do because that's what we have to do so that God will continue to be glorified in this world. In the midst of everything, that's what we'll do. Dare I say it? One, two, three. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, God of grace, God of glory, may we jump up and shout praise the Lord. May we glorify your name. Give us tangible responses. We won't get to carry you off the cross and lay you in a tomb. But you know what we can do? We can take care of our neighbors and our families, take care of the, of the most vulnerable around us. Lord, be generous with our time. Be generous with our finances for those who may not be as blessed as we are. Lord, we can pray for one another. We can lift one another up to you, not because you've forgotten anyone, but because it does our soul and our hearts incredible good to continue to grow and bring people to the foot of your cross. And Lord, at the end of the day, even when we don't feel like it, remind us to count to three, to jump up and simply say, praise the Lord. In your name I pray, amen. So let's praise him again.